Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode three of the third crusade called the Siege of Acre. In the last episode we heard about the death of the German emperor Frederick Barbarossa when he accidentally drowned in a river crossing Anatolia. Such was his charisma as a leader that after his death the German army pretty much broke up with some returning home, others continuing under Barbarossa's son Frederick of Swabia, but basically the largest force that Western Europe had put together since the first crusade had achieved nothing. Meanwhile, what was left of the Crusaders in the Middle East were quarrelling amongst themselves, with King Guy, who Saladin had released after taking him prisoner at the Battle of Hattin, at loggerheads with Conrad of Montferrat, who was successfully holding out against Saladin in the coastal fortress of Tyre. The English and French kings were still preparing their armies and were a very long way off arriving in the Middle East. So things seemed pretty bleak for the Crusaders. But to everyone's surprise, there was now going to be an unexpected twist that would give the Crusades a whole new lease of life. As before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. In July 1188, Saladin released King Guy to join Queen Sibylla at Tripoli after Guy swore that he would leave the Holy Land and never return. When Guy arrived at Tripoli, however, at once a cleric was found to release him from his oath to Saladin. It had been made under duress and to an infidel, they said. Therefore, it was invalid. Saladin was angry to hear of this, but cannot have been much surprised after visiting Antioch, where Beaumont gave him a vague promise to help, Guy marched with his supporters from Tripoli to Tyre, intending to take over the government of what remained of his former kingdom. But at Tyre, Conrad closed the gates in his face. In the opinion of Conrad's party, Guy had forfeited the kingdom at Hattin, as well as during his captivity. He had left it without a government, and all would have been lost but for Conrad's intervention. To Guy's demand to be received as king, Conrad answered that he held Tyre in trust for the crusader monarchs who were coming to rescue the Holy Land. The Emperor Frederick and the kings of France and England must decide to whom eventually the government should be given. It was a fair enough claim and it suited Conrad. Richard of England, as overlord of the Lusignan in Guienne, might favour Guy's cause, but the Emperor and Philip of France were Conrad's cousins and friends. Guy returned disconsolate with his party to Tripoli. It was well for the Franks that at this moment Saladin, with his army partly disbanded, was occupied in reducing the castles in the north of Syria, and that in January 1189 he sent further detachments back to their homes. He himself, after spending the first months of the year at Jerusalem and Acre reorganising the administration of Palestine, went back to his own capital at Damascus in March. In April, King Guy came again with Sibylla to Tyre and again demanded to be given control of the city. Finding Conrad as obstinate as before, he encamped in front of its walls. About the same time, valuable reinforcements arrived from the west. At the time of the fall of Jerusalem, the Pisans and the Genoese were enjoying one of their habitual wars, but amongst the triumphs of Pope Gregory VIII in his short pontificate was the negotiation of a truce between them and the promise of a peace 
Pisan fleet for the crusade. The Pisans therefore set out before the end of the year but wintered at Messina. Their 52 warships arrived off Tyre on the 6th of April 1189 under the command of their archbishop Ubaldo. Soon afterwards Ubaldo seems to have quarrelled with Conrad and when Guy appeared the Pisans joined up with him. He also won the support of the Sicilian auxiliaries. During the early summer there was some slight skirmishing between the Franks and the Muslims but Saladin still wished to rest his armies and the Christians awaited more help from the west. Suddenly at the end of August King Guy broke his camp and set out to march with his followers southward down the coast road to attack the city of Acre and the Pisan and Sicilian ships sailed to keep him company. It was a move of desperate foolhardiness, the decision of a brave but very unwise man thwarted of his wish to reign in Tyre. Guy urgently needed a city from which to reconstitute his kingdom. Conrad was seriously ill at the time and it seemed to Guy a fine opportunity to show that he was the active leader of the Crusaders. But the risk was enormous. The size of the Muslim garrison at Acre was more than twice that of Guy's whole army and Saladin's regular forces were also in the offing. No one could have foreseen that the adventure would succeed. But history has its surprises. If Conrad's ruthless energy had saved the remnant of Palestine for Christendom, it was Guy's gallant folly that turned the tide and began an era of reconquest for the Crusaders. When the news reached him of Guy's expedition, Saladin was in the hills beyond Sidon, laying siege to the castle of Beaufort. The castle, perched on a high cliff above the river Litani, belonged to Reynald of Sidon and had hitherto been preserved by the cunning of its lord. He had gone to Saladin's court and had charmed the Sultan and his entourage by his deep appreciation of Arabic literature and his interest in Islam. He hinted that given a little time he would settle as a convert in Damascus but the months passed and nothing happened except that the fortifications of Beaufort were greatly strengthened. At last early in August Saladin said that the time had come for the surrender of Beaufort as a gauge of Reynald's intentions. Reynald was taken under escort to the castle gate where he ordered the garrison commander in Arabic to yield up the castle and in French he ordered him to resist. The Arabs saw through the ruse but were powerless to take the castle by storm. While Saladin brought up his forces to blockade it, Reynald was cast into prison at Damascus. Saladin first thought that Guy's march was intended to draw the Saracen army away from Beaufort, but his spies soon told him that its real objective was Acre. He then wished to attack the Crusaders while they were climbing over the ladder of Tyre or the headlands of Nakura, but his council would not agree it would be better, they said, to let them reach Tyre and catch them between the garrison there and the Sultan's main army. Saladin, who was not well at the time, weakly gave way. King Guy arrived outside Acre on the 28th of August and set up his camp on the hill of Turon, a mile east of the city, by the little river Belus, which supplied his men with water. When his first attempt, three days later, to take the city by assault failed, he settled down to await reinforcements. Acre was built on a small peninsula that jutted southward into the Gulf of Haifa. To the south and west, it was 
protected by the sea and a strong sea wall, a broken mole ran out south-eastward to a rock crowned with a fort called the Tower of Flies. Behind the mole was a harbour sheltered against all but the offshore wind. The north and east of the city were protected by great walls which met at a right angle at a fort called the Cursed Tower at the northeast corner. The two land gates were at either end of the wall by the shore. A large sea gate opened into the harbour and a second onto an anchorage exposed to the dominant west wind. Under the Crusader kings, Acre had been the richest town in the kingdom and their favourite residence. Saladin had often visited it during the last months and had carefully repaired the damage caused by his troops when he captured it. It was a very strong fortress now, well garrisoned, well provisioned, capable of a long resistance. However, reinforcements began to arrive from the west early in September. First came a large fleet of Danes and Frisians, undisciplined soldiers, but excellent sailors whose galleys were invaluable for blockading the city from the sea, especially when the death of William of Sicily in November led to the withdrawal of the Sicilian squadron. A few days later, ships from Italy brought a Flemish and French contingent led by the gallant knight James of Avennes and the Counts of Bar, Brienne and Dreux and Philip, Bishop of Beau before the month was ended, a party of Germans also arrived under Louis Margrave of Thuringia, who preferred to travel with his followers by sea rather than accompany his emperor. These arrivals alarmed Saladin, who began to gather his vassals again, and who came down with part of his army from Beaufort, leaving a smaller detachment to finish the reduction of the castle. His attack on Guy's camp on the 15th of September failed, but his nephew Taki was able to break round the Frankish lines and establish contact with the north gate of the city. He himself established his camp a little to the east of the Christians. Soon the Franks felt able to take the offensive. Louis of Thuringia, as he passed through Tyre, was able to persuade Conrad of Montferrat to join the Crusader army so long as he did not have to serve under Guy's command. On the 4th of October, after having fortified their camp, which was left under the command of Guy's brother Geoffrey, the Crusaders launched a great attack on Saladin's lines. It was a bitter battle. Taki on the Saracen right retired to lure on the Templars, who were opposite to him, but Saladin himself was deceived by the manoeuvre and weakened his centre to rescue him. As a result, both his right and his centre were put to flight with heavy losses, some of his troops never reining their horses until they reached Tiberias. The Count of Brienne even penetrated to the Sultan's own tent, but the Saracen left was intact and when the Christians broke their ranks to pursue the fugitive, Saladin charged with it and drove them back in disorder to their camp, which was at the same time assailed by a sortie from the garrison of Acre. Geoffrey of Lusignan held firm there, and soon the greater part of the Christian army was safe behind its defences, where Saladin didn't venture to attack them. But the Crusaders had suffered heavy losses. Many Crusader knights fell on the field, including Andrew of Brienne. The German troops had panicked and suffered severely, and losses were also high among the Templars. Their grandmaster, Gerard of Ridfort, who had been King Guy's evil genius in the days before Hattin, was captured and paid for his follies with his death. Conrad himself only escaped capture by the gallant intervention of his rival, King Guy. The victory had been with the Muslims 
Muslims, but it was not a complete victory. The Christians hadn't been dislodged, and during the autumn, more help came from the West. The Londoners' fleet arrived in November, heartened by their success in Portugal. The chroniclers tell of many other crusaders drawn from the nobility of France, Flanders and Italy, and even from Hungary and Denmark. Many Western knights had refused to wait for the slow progress of the monarchs of Europe. Thanks to this added strength, the crusaders were able to complete the blockade of Acre by land. But Saladin too was receiving reinforcements. The news of the Emperor Frederick's journey, while it encouraged the Christians, had induced him to summon his vassals from all over Asia. And he even wrote to the Muslims of Morocco and Spain to say that if Western Christendom was sending its knights to fight for the Holy Land, Western Islam should do likewise. They answered him with sympathy, but very little positive help. Nevertheless, his army was soon large enough for him in his turn, almost entirely to blockade the Crusaders. The besiegers had become the besieged. On the 31st of October, 50 of Saladin's galleys broke through the Crusader fleet, though with the loss of some ships, to bring food and munitions to the Muslim garrison of Acre. And on the 26th of December, a larger armada from Egypt reopened communications with the harbour. Throughout the winter, the armies faced each other, neither venturing on a major engagement. There were skirmishes and duels, but at the same time, there was growing fraternisation. The knights on either side began to know and to respect each other. A fight would be interrupted while the protagonists enjoyed a friendly conversation. Enemy soldiers would be invited to come to the feasts and entertainments arranged in either camp. One day, the little boys living in the Saracen camp challenged the Christian boys to a mock combat. Saladin himself was distinguished by the kindness that he showed to Christian prisoners and the courteous messages and gifts that he would send to the Christian princes. The more fanatical of his followers wondered what had happened to the holy war that he had begged the caliph to preach. Nor did newly come knights from the west find the atmosphere easy to comprehend. Superficially, the bitterness had gone out of the war, but both sides kept a grim determination for victory. Despite these pleasant courtesies, life in the Christian camp was harsh that winter. Food was short, especially as the Franks had lost command of the sea. As the warmer weather approached, water became a problem and sanitary arrangements broke down. Disease spread through the troops. Chastened by the difficulties of their men, Guy and Conrad patched up an agreement. Conrad was to hold Tyre with Beirut and Sidon when they should be recovered and was to recognise Guy as king. When peace between them was thus made, Conrad left the camp in March and at the end of the month returned from Tyre with ships laden with food and armaments. Saladin's fleet sailed out of the harbour of Acre to intercept him, but after a sharp battle, the Saracen ships were driven back in spite of their use of Greek fire, and Conrad was able to land the goods. With the help of the material that he brought, the Crusaders constructed wooden siege towers with which, on the 5th of May, they tried to attack the city. But the towers were burnt. Soon famine and sickness reappeared in the Christian camp, and it was little consolation to know that in Acre, too, there was famine, although from time to time Saracen ships fought their way into the harbour, bringing new provisions. Throughout the spring, new contingents of Muslims joined Saladin's army. On the 19th of May, he began an attack on the Crusader camp, which was only beaten off after eight days fighting. The next full-scale battle was on the 25th of July, when the Crusader soldiers, led by their sergeants and against the wishes of their leaders, boldly attacked Taki's camp on Saladin's right. They were terribly defeated and many perished. A distinguished English crusader, Ralph of Alteripa, Archbishop of Colchester, went to their rescue and was killed. During the summer, other high-born crusaders arrived in the camp and were made welcome, though every new soldier meant another mouth to feed. Many of 
the greatest French and Burgundian nobles were among them hurrying ahead of their king, Frederick of Swabia, with the remnant of Barbarossa's army, arrived at Acre early in October. A few days later, an English contingent landed at Tyre and came down to Acre. At its head was Baldwin, Archbishop of Canterbury. There was desultory fighting throughout the summer, each side awaiting the reinforcements that would enable it to take the offensive. Meanwhile, the fall of Beaufort in July released men for Saladin's army, but he had sent troops to the north to intercept Frederick Barbarossa, and they did not return until the winter. Meanwhile, skirmishes alternated with fraternisation. The Christian chroniclers noted with complacency several incidents in which, by the hand of God, Saracens were discomforted and crusader heroism rewarded. But every attempt to scale the walls of the city failed. Frederick of Swabia launched a fierce attack soon after his arrival, and the Archbishop of Besançon soon afterwards tried out some newly constructed battering rams. Both efforts were in vain. In November, the Crusaders managed to dislodge Saladin from his position at Talkaisen, five miles from the city, but he established himself in a stronger position at Talkaruba, a little further away. This enabled them to break through to Haifa on a foraging expedition, which slightly relieved the hunger in the Christian camp. But both in the city and in the two camps, both Muslim and Crusader, there was hunger and illness. Neither side was fitted to make a supreme effort for victory. Amongst the victims of disease that autumn was Queen Sibylla. The two little daughters that she had borne to King Guy died a few days before her own death. The heiress to the kingdom was now the Princess Isabella, and Guy's crown was in jeopardy. He had won the crown as the Queen's husband. Did his right survive her death? To the surviving barons of the kingdom led by Balian of Evelyn, it seemed an opportunity to rid themselves of his weak and unlucky rule. Their candidate for the throne was was Conrad of Montferrat. If he could be married to Isabella, his claims would be higher than those of Guy. There were difficulties in this solution. Conrad was rumoured to have one wife living at Constantinople and possibly another in Italy, and never to have troubled about any annulment or divorce. But Constantinople and Italy were far away, and if there were deserted ladies there, they could be forgotten. On the 24th of November 1190, Conrad married Isabella, making him himself rightful heir to be king instead of Guy. The Lusignan supporters were furious at this marriage that abolished Guy's right to the throne, and King Richard of England's vassals gave them full sympathy. But Archbishop Baldwin, their chief spokesman, after hurling excommunications on everyone connected with the affair, had died suddenly on the 19th of November. The English chroniclers did all that they could to blacken Conrad's memory. Guy himself went so far as to challenge Conrad to a single combat, but Conrad, knowing that legitimate right was now on his side, refused to admit that the case could be discussed any more. The Lusignans might call it cowardice, but all that had the future of the kingdom at heart realised that if the royal line was to be continued, Isabella must have a child, and Conrad, the saviour of Tyre, was the obvious choice for her. The newly wedded pair returned to Tyre, where next year Isabella gave birth to a daughter called Maria after her Byzantine grandmother. Conrad correctly would not take the title of king until he and his wife should be crowned, but as Guy refused to abdicate any of his rights, he would not return from Tyre to the camp. 
The quarrels of the Crusaders continued throughout the winter months. Saladin's reinforcements had arrived from the north and the Frankish camp was now almost completely cut off from outside help. No food could come by land, nor during the winter months could much be landed on the inhospitable coast, where Saracen ships could sometimes fight their way into the shelter of Acre Harbour. Among the lords that died of sickness in the camp were Tybald of Blois and his brother Stephen of Sancerre. On the 20th of January 1191, Frederick of Swabia died, and the German soldiers found themselves leaderless, though his cousin Leopold of Austria, who arrived from Venice early in the spring, tried to rally them under his banner. Henry of Champagne was for many weeks so ill that his life was despaired of. Many of the soldiers, especially the English, blamed Conrad for their misery because he was dallying at Tyre and refused to come to their aid. But whatever his motive may have been, it is hard to see what else he could have done. The Crusader camp was sufficiently crowded without him. Now and then, an attempt was made to scale the walls of Acre, notably on the 31st of December, when the wreck of a Saracen relief ship at the harbour entrance was distracting the Muslim garrison. It failed, nor were the Crusaders able to profit by a collapse of part of the land wall six days later. There were many deserters to the Muslims. Thanks to their help and to his excellent spy system, Saladin was able to send a force to break through the Crusader lines on the 13th of February, with a fresh commander and garrison to relieve the weary defenders of the city. But he hesitated to make a final attack on the Crusader camp. Many of his troops were weary, and when reinforcements arrived, he sent detachments away to rest. The misery among the Christians seemed to be doing his work for him. He was once again unwise in this forbearance. As Lent approached, it seemed that the Crusaders could no longer survive. In their camp, a silver penny bought only 13 beans or a single egg, and a sack of corn cost 100 pieces of gold. Many of the best horses were slaughtered to provide their owners with food. The common soldiers ate grass and chewed bare bones. The Crusaders were also hampered by the greed of the Pisan merchants who controlled most of the food supplies. But in March, when everything seemed most desperate, a fully laden corn ship arrived off the coast and was able to land its cargo, and as the weather improved, others followed. They were doubly welcome, for they brought not only foodstuffs, but the news that the kings of France and England were in eastern waters. At long last, the help that had been promised from the West was about to arrive. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd be hugely grateful if you left any ratings on the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. That's because I'm trying to get more awareness there since it's such a big podcast distributor. And any review that you leave will be a really massive help for me. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear more about the next stage of the Third Crusade. (laughs) 